I live in like a well forested valley. So like, we have glacier fed streams. So we will continue to have clean water. I know gardeners, but like, there's not a lot of like space. So they're not growing grain, like they're not growing cereal Mm -hmm. grains. You know, they have chickens and they have fresh produce. And so I'm like, probably what people need is just starch in a way to cook it. (laughs) Ugh, Sounds like a party to me. is Queers at the End of the World, the podcast where our conclave goes skinny dipping in the hot springs and dries out on the rocks having a two-hour meeting about what beans to grow this year. I'm your host, Nina. And I'm your host, Nat. And today we're talking to Avery Alder, a designer of games about community, relationships, doubt, queerness, and the collapse of civilization. Alder has been designing games for the last 13 years, including the acclaimed title Monster Hearts 2 where you and your friends create stories about sexy monsters, teenage angst, personal horror, and secret love triangles, and The Quiet Year, a map game where you define the struggles of a community living after the collapse of civilization and attempt to build something good within their quiet year. Alder also designed the game we're planning to play right here on the podcast, Dream Askew, where you collaboratively tell the story of a post-apocalyptic queer enclave. I'm so excited for it. Nat, You were the person who introduced this game to me and to the podcast, and I know that you've been really excited about Avery Alder's work for quite a while. Yes, her work has long been on my radar, and it's one of those things where people have repeatedly said to me, like, Nat, you have to play The Quiet Year. You would love it. It's exactly up your alley. And also, I have had that said to me about Monster Hearts 2, which Mm. I still haven't gotten to play, and I just want to play so, so much. (laughs) And there's something just so beautiful to me about everything Avery Alder does. I feel so inspired by her game design practice, and I was absolutely over the moon that we were considering bringing her on the podcast and then that she agreed to do an interview with us. Yes. Well, let's get into it. So I'm going to ask this first question and it is what drew you to post-apocalyptic and apocalyptic in the case of Dream Askew settings in the first place? What about the post-apocalypse seems like a fruitful space for the building of queer community? I guess for me... I grew up in a rural logging village of about a thousand people. Um, We didn't get the internet in my hometown until I was in grade seven or eight. We -hmm. didn't get cell phone service in my hometown until I was 16 or 17. And I never had a, the cell phone tower never reached to my house. And so for me, I grew up in a world that felt much more, um, immediate and close to home, I guess, Mm -hmm. then it feels like the world that we're living in now. There were 50 people my age, and those were the 50 people. Um, And if you wanted more people my age, if you you drive 45 minutes through the woods, you get to New Denver, and there's about seven more. Um, And then otherwise, you know, it's hours of driving, and it's ferries and mountain passes before you get to any other people who I might, you know, be able to identify as peers. And so for me going from that context into, you know, moving to the city and being digitally connected with people around the world and people having cell phones. And they're always being this kind of seemingly endless pool of connections and possibilities. Um, I don't know, I guess it was a real, it was a real culture shock. And 
I noticed how people treated one another differently. Um, when you could easily just move on from somebody, you know, you could ghost them and not have to deal with the consequences every day for the next 40 years. Um, it really changes how humans interact with one another. Um, and for me, I guess, when I think about the word community, I think about like people who are stuck with each other for mm -hmm. good and for bad, who need to do the growth within themselves that is necessary before they can actually productively live side by side. And those are themes that I'm really interested in. I've been thinking about this a bunch and I think that's, that's kind of where it emerges from mm -hmm. for me. Um, my entrance into adulthood, my kind of transition out of, you know, moving out of my small town when I was 17, my introduction to queer community, it was all in this kind of amorphous, sprawling, urban, digitally connected, mm. highly disposable kind of culture. Mm. And I'm, I guess I'm still reeling from that. And I'm still figuring out like, is that a good thing? What have we lost um, because of these opportunities? And so for me, I guess post-apocalyptic settings are a way of returning to that, like, what if these are just your 50 people? Mm. How does that change who you are and how you need to behave? And what your political and social goals become. Hmm. There's something there that it reminds me of just sort of being an older millennial and, you know, like also kind of experiencing like that's, that's sort of the timeline for me, just even though I was living in a very big city, that was also sort of the moment of change, like no internet till early high school and no cell phone until <laughs> college. And like, there's a connection, I think also to maybe some of the ways that we look back on like the kinds of queer community that people were forced in some ways into in the eighties and early nineties. And there's like a little bit of nostalgia there, like reading Dykes to watch out for or something like that. And being like, Oh, all these 30 year olds living in a house together. And like that not being the norm in queer community anymore. That makes me question my own attachments to apocalypse and like that idea of community and all of the queers I know who are just like, let's all start a farm. <laughs> Yeah, totally. I feel like the uh, let's all start a farm is always like a really fascinating thing because nobody means like, let's train our bodies to wake up at 5am. <laughs> like, let's learn how to like, pull a dead calf out of a cow. Uh, you know, yeah, totally. in the dead of winter, like, no, nobody means that. Yeah. Um, but but they do they do mean like, I feel like something integral has been lost. Yeah. in the world that we live in today, something that is like immediate and felt and visceral and like human and, and present that is just like kind of dispersed to the winds. Mm. Yeah. It really reminds me of a conversation that we had where we were talking about um, being in nature and camping and being in the woods and being queer. And I remember saying in that conversation to you, Nina, that, one of the appeals for that for me was the idea that people would be there and there would they wouldn't leave. Yeah. And what you're saying, Avery, reminds me so much of that sense I have of just this desire to be together in one place, there being no better place or more important place that people need to get to either mentally or physically. And associating that with these certain settings, I guess, like maybe like trying to survive in nature or camping, and then also the 
post-apocalyptic sort of space. So I really tune in with yeah, that. Yeah, so after kind of talking about apocalypse and how it connects to your work, we noticed that in an interview for the website Interlocutor, you also said that you've started to kind of shift away from the language of post-apocalypse a little bit when talking about Dream Askew, which is a game set in a post-apocalypse, and your other game that's that's uh, kind of a similar themes, A Quiet Year. Um, could you talk a little bit about what that shift has meant for you and how it's reflected in the way that the games are designed? Yeah, definitely. I switched to using the terms like post-collapse or collapse of civilization more mm-hmm. frequently than I do post-apocalypse. And I think there's a couple of reasons for that. Um, one is that post-apocalypse makes it sound like there is going to be a single event. Yep. And I think there's never going to be a single global event. And when we talk about like the collapse of civilization, collapse Im- implies that there's a process and potentially a really uneven process. Mm-hmm. When things collapse, they tend to collapse, you know, wherever there's the least support first. And so I've shifted my language in part to acknowledge that I think that when we tell stories about social structures and infrastructure breaking down, we need to acknowledge that that's a process. And in Dream Askew, that's kind of like explicitly embedded in the setting. Yeah that apocalypse comes in waves, that it impacts people who are the most marginalized first, and that people are like potentially living in the wasteland, you know, having to source their own water and food every day. Mm -hmm. And then there's still going to be people in like, you know, they drive their Lamborghinis to their air conditioned malls. They eat at like fancy experimental restaurants and all those things. And they will not acknowledge that people are suffering and that people have fallen out of the edges of the collapsing society. And I think that one of the things that Dream Askew is trying to acknowledge is that that collapse has always been an attendant process to the building of empire and the building of civilization, mm. right? There have always been people collapsing out of the edges of those social structures. And I think the other reason that I stopped using the term post-apocalyptic is that people have this image in their head of like a really grizzled man who somehow always has like, (laughs) you know, eight days double, um, walking around in leather and he's got a gun and he has like a, like a catchphrase that's like three syllables long (laughs) and he kills. And I think we just, we already have that story. We have a lot of versions of that story. And I don't think that's the one we need. What I really want stories about is like, how do you and your 50 friends who are all like, you know, they're screwed up and Mm -hmm. they have their own problems how do you all collectively figure out how to like get enough drinking water and build shelter when none of you like are actually have experience in the trades? How do you figure out how to navigate breakups when there's nowhere to go anymore? Mm. Um, so that's, that's the quote unquote post-apocalyptic story that I'm interested in exploring. Um, but the, the term post-apocalyptic just doesn't bring most people to that place. Right. It brings them to the to the rugged individualist. Right. And I just I think we already have enough stories about rugged individualists. I think we already have enough stories about heroes. Um, totally. I think we have enough we have enough three act structures. So I'm like, I'm just not interested in in going there as often anymore. That's amazing. That that guy, that that black leather clad, like grizzled dude, that like he's he's very much been with us since the beginning of this podcast. We call him the sheriff. 
And uh, <laughs> yes, yeah, <laughs> yeah. It's just it's it's also delightful to me because grizzled is is definitely the adjective that that like came up through my consciousness too when I was thinking about him. Like I don't know. Now I've got like this image in my head of him like rubbing his beard on people. <laughs> Right. But it's it's never like a beard. No. It's always same amount of stubble. Right. Like it's a it's a really he's clearly maintaining yes, yes. That, the care uh, that I haven't shaved look. <laughs> yeah. That's right. And I feel like, you that's know, like right. hearing stories about him, the sheriff, mm-hmm. that's interesting. There should be some stories about him, like five. Yeah. We should have totally. like five great stories about him. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I, I feel like we've we've got a big enough pool that we can just like pick the the, the best five and then just be done with him. Yeah. You know? Yeah, maybe we should make a pool for which yeah. are the best five. I yeah, I mean I feel like one of the things that comes up for folks when you address the idea of telling like a post-collapse um type of story without that guy is Folks think, well, without a three-act structure and the hero and this cataclysmic event, what tension and conflict is there to create interest in a story about this? Mm-hmm. And I feel like what you're saying is that is a silly reaction. There is so much conflict and so much interest in telling a story like, what do you and 50 of your friends do when there's nowhere to go? We have to rely on our own wits and our own strength and we have to make a community together. Yeah. I think that stories that, that establish like this is the hero, the hero meets opposition and overcomes it to earn their rewards and their rewards are their own and their goals are pure like that. I think that's like, that's a storytelling setup that really rewards capitalist and colonialist Mm -hmm. thinking. Um, And, and there's been the argument, I feel like Joseph Campbell and others have made the argument that this is a universal way that stories are told. And I, and I do not think that is true. Like there, there are lots of storytelling modalities throughout history around the world that are like, and here's the story of this problematic trickster who like Mm -hmm. does some good stuff does some shitty stuff, right? That's why we have mountains now. Um, <laughs> yeah. and, and I just feel like uh, we've, as a culture, because it's been argued to us by literary scholars and because it's profitable mm. to tell this sort of story, have bought into this idea that every story needs to have this protagonist who overcomes staggered adversity, learns one valuable lesson, and then <laughs> is rewarded for learning that lesson materially. Mm. And we even end up reading in the kind of last couple decades as this sort of anti-hero has become more of a darling, especially in post-apocalyptic stories, the sort of like, do what you have to do. I think we end up reading that kind of moral purity and clarity of intention into characters. I'm thinking of, you know, Joel in The Last of Us is someone we've talked about a lot as that figure where it's pretty dangerous for our ideas of right ways to live for that person to be seen as like having moral clarity or, you know, or, or having good intentions. Yeah. And I feel like I don't think it is a coincidence that the anti-hero emerges chronologically kind of immediately after Thatcherism. Mm. Um, I, like I, I was saying, I feel like the way that we tell stories really rewards colonialism and capitalism. And the fact that like the anti-hero emerges to teach us this valuable lesson that sometimes cruelty Mm -hmm. is part of how you, how you attain a virtuous end. Yeah. 
like that's that's really embedded in a lot of like neoliberalist ideas that's really embedded in thatcherism and i feel like the way we tell stories is often a reaction to our political and economic circumstances and i just feel like yeah the anti-hero emerges as a response to this really like barefaced and mercenary turn in capitalism that we saw in the 1980s you know what I obviously love about playing games and especially games like Dream Askew is that because it's collaborative and done as a group and it's done interactively, it obviously resists the idea of creating a story that has an anti-hero or a hero at the center of it. And I see so much possibility in games specifically for this reason to resist the sense that there is only one type of way of telling a story, which is a single author text. And then within a single author text, finding these reflections of problematic political orientations. So, I mean, obviously, I'm just so excited about the potential of collaborative storytelling, where all of the relationships matter, mm-hmm. and everybody's equally involved in kind of figuring out what the story is going to mm-hmm. be. So I wanted to get into Dream Askew a little bit. I had a question for you about how this game has kind of evolved for you or for folks you might be working with or speaking with during COVID. You know, I've been involved in so much playing of RPGs on the internet in the last year and a half. And it's been really interesting to me to kind of see how different things have become. And I was really struck in reading the text of Dream Askew because there's this section in it that says, if you're hosting the session at your house, consider cooking a meal for everyone. Mm -hmm. And in that, I just felt like my heart was like ripping out because (laughs) I crave that experience so much. (laughs) And I was just curious if you would talk a little bit about, I guess, getting people in this collaborative space and creating comfort and mutual care during COVID? And if you've been playing games online with folks, what that's looked like for you? Yeah. So first, yeah, Dream Askew. It's published in a book alongside a companion game or a sister game that was written by a friend named Benjamin Rosenbaum Mm -hmm. called Dream Apart. And so Dream Askew is about uh, queer people living through the collapse of civilization. Dream Apart is uh, a Jewish shtetl community and kind Mm -hmm. of a, a fabulous version of the past. And for me, the physicality of like sharing space together and being there to witness one another's laughter and surprise, that's all a really important part of the role-playing game experience. And so, yeah, there's there's advice about how to host, how to stage a space. Um, there's a recipe that comes with each mm-hmm. game. The one for Dream Askew is specifically written so that if supermarkets and electricity no longer exist, the recipe still holds. (laughs) Um, It's all things that are easy to grow crops that grow well in a wide range of climates. But yeah, so for, for me, sharing food, sharing laughter, sharing physical space is all really important part of role playing games. And so when COVID started, I kind of just stopped playing, to be Mm. honest. Mm -hmm. I've played role playing games a little bit. But mostly just my answer is that it just stopped being a present and active part of my life because I didn't feel like I could recapture the thing that is important about it for me. Mm. And I don't think that's the thing that is important about it for everyone. I think a lot of people play online games and really love Mm -hmm. them. Also, a lot of people really like to stream 
their role-playing games and share them with large audiences, which is totally cool for them. Um, but for like, for me, I'm like part of what is essential about a role-playing game is that it is not performed for an audience, that it is something that you make that is ephemeral, that is only held in the minds of the people playing it, and then mm-hmm. it disappears forever. And that's like a really essential quality of it for me. And so, yeah, I guess my, my answer is just that I have switched to playing tactical and strategic games and video games, and I haven't been playing role-playing games very much at all. I also haven't been doing a lot of design because for me, design and play are really interlinked. So I've kind of been shifting my role over the last 16 months or however long to doing a lot more consulting and mentorship. I'm um, preparing to be teaching a role-playing game design course in the summer um, through Emily Carr, which is a um, local arts university. There's so many things that that kind of come to mind in, in hearing that. This thing that you're saying about... Um, the ephemeral nature being one of the things that you love about role-playing games and the kind of creation of the story and this experience in a like shared and kind of private space, right? Privacy is not something that, um, that gets a whole lot of support and value in some ways that we do culture right now. (laughs) Um, And I love that. And it also sort of connects in my mind to something that I've seen you talk about before, which is this idea of militant generosity, like cooking for people and spreading your network of support and care beyond your immediate circle, but also just like being, um, you know, militantly and intentionally being there for the folks in your life, um, which is an idea that really appeals to me, especially because generosity is something that I know I've sometimes struggled with, like, you know, growing up in this culture that really emphasizes scarcity and a sense of grievance and lack. And I hear in the sort of willingness to let a good thing be private and momentary and gone. um, I hear like echoes of that idea of generosity. And I'm just wondering if you could talk a little bit more about it and how militant generosity came to you as a value and how you, how you practice it and build it into also into your practice of games and, and life. Definitely. Um, Yeah, that was a term that I talked about in an interview I did with Mask Magazine Mm -hmm. um, in 2017, I believe. Mm -hmm. And uh, since then, I've actually encountered a book that is really easy to point to and say, oh, that, that's what I was trying to talk about, um, which is Joyful Militancy. Mm. It's put out by AK Press. It was written by I think Carla Bergman and one other person whose name I can't remember off the top of my head. But um, Joyful Militancy is a, a a really wonderful book, and I feel like a really wonderful intervention mm-hmm. into activist thought and anarchist thought. Um, and it specifically is like building upon Spinozan concepts of affect. And yeah. I don't feel like I could try and summarize that, but <laughs> um, but yeah, uh, it, it it's a it's a great extrapolation of the the kinds of things that I was hoping to talk about when I when I talked about militant generosity. Um, For me, I find that in a lot of activist spaces and queer radical spaces and just especially online queer community, there is a real desire to punish wrong thinking. Mm. Um, There's a real desire to weed out the people who... um, who are not serious. And I often find that that 
that turns into also a real desire to weed out anyone who has been less fortunate than you in terms of being educated generously mm-hmm. by others, mm-hmm. right? Like none, none of us show up knowing how to uh, be good and, and do justice in the world. <laughs> like, yeah. like none of us know how to treat others who are different than us with respect, just like by virtue of like being born a good person. Right. These are actually things that we have to learn. And the only way that we learn them is people bother with us enough yeah. to teach us. And I think that there's this attitude that I see really frequently of like, just do your own homework, mm, yeah. right? Like you need to put the work in before you can show up here. And I think that's yeah. actually just not how human learning works. Like having taken courses and done readings and like adult transformative learning, I know that like it takes people meeting you in your like your zone of proximal development and people meeting you at your learning edge and giving you the scaffolding you need to learn to like grow a little bit incrementally over Mm -hmm. time it like it takes people challenging like individual tenets of belief with enough consistency that eventually the larger belief structures collapse Um, and it takes people being there when they collapse to actually help you rebuild them into something better Mm -hmm. and so for me that's part of what I'm talking about with militant generosity I think that saying like I am committed to being vulnerable and open with you. I am committed to meeting you each time you show up. And I am committed to trying to take care of the people around me as best as I can. Yeah, I I guess for me, the first question I have about like queer radical spaces specifically is like, are people kind to one another? Mm -hmm. Because if they're not, then like extrapolating that out to the revolution that they want to have, like (laughs) I don't want to have it. Yes, yes, (laughs) yes. Totally. And so I guess, yeah, when I when I moved, I moved from Vancouver to the town that I la- now live in, well, the unincorporated municipality with about 300 <laughs> people scattered across the woods. Uh, we got a dog and the dog was picked up from a shelter and he had, he was nervous and anxious and would bite and bark and was just, mm-hmm. he, he'd had hurt in his life. Mm-hmm. And so we brought in a dog trainer to work with us at one point and she was wonderful with him. Um, and she as she was like kind of like guiding him and teaching him, she was also talking to us. And she kept on using the word appropriate. Um, mm-hmm. Like this dog needs to know what is appropriate. And for whatever reason, as she was talking about like, it is all of our jobs to teach one another how to be appropriate in a space. It like, for whatever reason, was this awakening moment for me when I reflected back on like the bad experiences I had had with it, with individuals who I had bad experiences with over the past however many three or four years, I was like, oh, yeah, you were, potentially you were politically right, and you were definitely politically righteous, but how you were interacting in that space was not appropriate. Mm -hmm. And nothing can actually justify the fact that you were being not appropriate. Mm -hmm. And just like, for some, for whatever reason, this dog trainer, I was like, great, you helped us with our dog, but also like you, like, (laughs) you helped me in this, this amazing way, get over my desire to please people who are hurtful to me, mm. um, which mm. I don't know if either of you has. I like I'm <laughs> oh, a people pleaser, which means like the more the more rotten someone is to me, the more I'm like, oh, I should clearly be investing more energy into you <laughs> so that you'll eventually like me. 1000%. Because I can, I can overcome your nature somehow. Um, but that really helped me to like getting into new relationships or new spaces. I'm like, oh, you're not behaving appropriately. 
I'm going to withdraw 100% of my effort with you at this point. But bringing that back around to militant generosity, um, I think that the question of like, are we appropriate with one another? And are we kind with one another? And do we attend to the like emotional resonance of our actions within a space mm. feels really important to me. And it feels like something that people are not only willing to, but also eager to righteously ignore mm. in a lot of queer radical spaces. And that's something that I want to shift. Oh my gosh. I, 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 that just sparks so many thoughts for me because I think so many of those ideas also manifest in classroom communities. And I, I teach and I'm in, just interested in, in, pedagogy and how to get classroom communities to actually be self-sustaining and healing and supportive and accommodate disagreement and all of these things. And I feel like that question of appropriateness is this thing that I see a lot of teachers using to dominate their students because students often come in in a state of unknowingness as to what's appropriate in a classroom And rather than explaining that, teachers rely on institutional norms or change what's appropriate randomly so that folks remain Mm -hmm. confused and unclear on what's okay Mm -hmm. and what's not. And this obviously disadvantages people who are people pleasers and also, obviously, anyone who doesn't understand the institutional norms that would be the basis of making a guess as to what's appropriate. I feel like it also really connects to what you were saying about post-apocalyptic and post-collapse or post collapse social networks, too, that's sort of appealing about imagining ourselves into that space is, is, is that it creates this opportunity or maybe even like compulsion for like radical generosity right like in order to create a shared sense of like what is appropriate (laughs) how we want to treat each other that there has to be that kind of good faith learning and teaching and taking responsibility for each other and I just hear hear so much of the like give and take between like like it has to be good faith is what I kind of hear you saying like it's both not abandoning folks for not knowing the right language or not knowing what the norms and what's appropriate and what's expected already when they may enter a space, but also the expectation of kind of getting that back and that folks will want to, will want to do that for you too and learn and change in order to create a community that's safe (laughs) for, for everybody. I mean, in classrooms and in, you know, these are all sort of like built and intentional communities where we like create a line around it and say, okay, in here, we're going to have to work together. Yeah, I feel like for me, when I think about my own learning and growth, and I think about having grown up, like I said, in a, in a community that like the internet wasn't present, cell phones weren't present, large amorphous disposable social networks weren't present, that I had a lot more privacy and there was a lot less ripple to my actions. And I just feel so grateful for having grown up in that context because like every one of my failures and screw ups, <laughs> yeah. like impacted people because that's ha- that's what happens. Mm-hmm. But like, I actually had the space to do the learning and growing that I needed to. If I'd been in the hyper visible world that I feel like I am in now, before being able to do a lot of my learning and growing, like I would have been ripped to pieces. Um, mm-hmm. Like I witness everyone else being ripped to pieces, you mm-hmm. know? Yeah. 
Just talking about this makes me want to ask a little more specifically about some of the mentoring work you've you've been doing. Yeah, I mean, a lot of the mentoring I've been doing over the past year or two has been like being brought on as a consultant on projects. Um, I've been brought on twice um, with Evil Hat Publishing when they worked with a new designer in bringing their first like Evil Hat release to the public. And honestly, a lot of the role that I have been increasingly like coming to occupy is coming in and saying like, I have a bunch of tools in terms of figuring out how to make a clean, accessible text. Mm -hmm. Um, And so I'm going to be coming to the table. I'm going to be talking to you about like templating, good indexing, having a clear and consistent hierarchy of information, Mm -hmm. uh, how to, how to have an accessible and consistent tone throughout 30,000 words. And so a lot of that is, you know, I feel like people, People have such exciting ideas already. I witness designers bringing such amazing innovation to the table so consistently these days. Like there, mm-hmm. there's, there's truly a wealth of like really exciting ideas and games right now. And at this point, I'm like 14 or 15 years into my career, and I've I've noticed increasingly that I'm really content to be like I would like to support you in achieving technical clarity in your work. Um, so that it can be played most consistently, so that it can continue to like be praised as a text for years to come, um, which is a really different place than I was in when I started my career, right? I was like printing zines and selling them yeah. out of my backpack and being like, if I can sell 10 of these this weekend, I can afford the gas money home. <laughs> totally. Um, and so, yeah, it's it's really interesting to have, to have come to this very different place, I guess. That's awesome. Well, we are going to be gathering as kind of the culmination of our first season of the podcast. We're going to be getting together a group of our collaborators, folks who we've done interviews like this with and met through making this podcast to play Dream Askew together. And this group of folks has had, you know, really wonderful conversations around apocalypse and, and queer imagination. And one of the things that's come out of the conversations that we've been having is a need to talk about utopia and to bring utopian desires and imaginaries into stories about apocalypse and the future. And kind of, I think Dream Askew feels like a, like maybe, (laughs) maybe the way to say it is like an appropriately compromised tool (laughs) for bringing out those utopian stories. And it makes me wonder how much you are thinking about or critical utopias and like whether that was part of your aim as a designer, like what are your thoughts on queer utopia and the possibilities and also the impossibilities (laughs) of getting together as queers to dream up something better? Hmm. Yeah. So for me, uh, I talked earlier about how I've largely stopped using the term post-apocalyptic to talk about Um, the kind of stories that I want to tell, because I feel like that gives people the illusion of this really tidy and definitive ending Mm -hmm. of so many things. And I don't think collapse works like that. I don't think there will be a time when all of this abruptly ends and we're in the new world. Um, I don't think that's real. And I also think the same thing about utopia, the like, and then we will be in the world where everything has been fixed. Like, I also don't think that's ever going to be a place that we reach that's ever a place that is reachable. There's this quote I really like about Utopia by um, Eduardo Galliano. If it's okay, I'd love to read it to you. Yeah, please. 
Utopia is on the horizon. I move two steps closer. It moves two steps farther away. I walk another 10 steps and the horizon runs 10 steps further away. As much as I walk, I'll never reach it. So what's the point of utopia? The point is this, to keep walking. And in terms of dream askew, I guess what I'm interested in is exploring the idea that I assert is true, that like nothing will ever be over, nothing will ever be destroyed. Um, It's always going to be rambling on and reinventing itself. And at the same time, nothing is ever going to be 100% fixed. Nothing is ever going to be perfect. So when things are collapsing and when promise is still somehow emerging, like all you have is this, right? You have Mm -hmm. the five of you, the 50 other people you're in community with, you're all weird. You've all got something to offer. You've all got like power and you've also all got problems. You've all got flaws and those flaws are going to continue to shape what is possible for your little world together. And so for for me, I guess the the instinct to try and imagine a world where where like capitalism is truly 100% over, colonialism is truly 100% over, all these things are truly 100% over, I don't think makes sense because I don't think that's how the world works. I think that ideas are pernicious, they survive forever. They reinvent themselves forever and we can try and do the best with what we have, but nothing's ever going to be over and nothing's ever going to be perfect. I love that so much. I feel like when we do our, our play tomorrow, we should read that utopia quote <laughs> as we're, as we're getting started just to get everybody in that headspace. I, I hadn't heard that quote and I love it. Thank you mm-hmm. for sharing that. I was going to ask this question. I, you've talked about, advising folks and helping them get their texts in this really clear and um, kind of easy to interact with and understand way. And I was wondering if there's anything else you're working on right now that you're excited about and that you'd like to, to, to talk about. The, the one project I've been kind of most actively working on is a game called Going for Broke. And it is a, it's like a wacky sitcom game about a collective house that is not going to make rent at the end of the month. So they have to come up with a scheme, a big scheme, and then a side scheme. (laughs) And then by the end of the episode, one has to fail and one has to succeed. And they cancel out to a point where you just barely skate by. (laughs) Um, And it's just like a cute, fun game. It takes about 40 minutes to play. And it's just kind of a a character piece um, about people kind of scrambling and exploring bad ideas and seeing what they can do to scrape by. I love how so many of your games are kind of pivoting. Like the fulcrum is this idea of compromise and failure that just delights my soul. (laughs) Yeah. I feel like stories about making do and getting by are interesting and we don't have enough of them. Uh, For me, I guess role-playing games, uh, like I want them to explore relationships and community and connection because that is something that they are uniquely positioned to do well. Yes. Okay. So we have a question that we ask on this podcast with, with some guests uh, when we think <laughs> yeah. of it. And it's essentially like, it's about this idea of a go bag and preparedness and, and thinking through a, like a, a collapse Lots of potential things could go in this. We're we're not interested in necessarily or less interested in like what brand of shelf-stable food you might put in it, though that might be relevant <laughs> as well. But 
the question is generally just like, what w- what would you put in your queer go bag? So I think that first of all, I just want to like acknowledge the like for a podcast about the post apocalypse. If we're talking about like a shit hits the fan kind of go bag, um, like I'm probably I'm probably dying early, uh, <laughs> and I'm just like I just acknowledge that. And so for me, like my go bag, I'm I'm not really like how will I make it alone in the woods for 15 years. The only way I'm surviving that scenario is if I have other people who I know can help bail me out. Mm-hmm. Um, like I just, I do not have the survival skills to to make it in that rugged individualist sheriff kind of way. Yeah. I'm not going to be able to be that person. So for me, I have a wagon um in my shed and it's got like big um like thick chunky wheels that are good at navigating like bumpy forests and things like that and i feel like my go bag like i'm just gonna uh have like a ziploc bag full of just like i don't know like six thousand matches (laughs) i'm gonna have two cast irons i'm gonna have a grill like a, a little grate that you could put over a fireplace to put the cast iron on. And I'm going to have like, because I've got this wagon, I'm going to have like 40 pounds of dried beans and rice. Hell yeah. Um, <laughs> I'm going to have like a, a bicycle tire patch kit uh, and a bike tire pump and batteries. And I'm just going to like, honestly hope that like everyone else has, yeah, I have, I have multiple friends who have chickens um, and who have great gardening skills. Um, and, and I'm hoping that they live. And then I can show up and be like, I'm the person who figured out a way to conveniently lug around cast iron pans <laughs> and dried beans. Yeah. Um, <laughs> yeah. Because I know I'm just, I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna make it alone. Uh, so I have to figure out what are my friends probably not gonna do. And I'm like, they probably don't have a, like a dope wagon like I do. <laughs> uh, so yeah, that's, that would be my, my go wagon. Awesome. Cast irons, dried beans and rice. Hell yes. Yes. I love that so much. Oh my God. I also love, love beans and rice too. So like, I I hope that if it does go down that I'm like somewhere in that vicinity so I can bring whatever my skills are and and trade it for a snack or maybe lunch. (laughs) Thank you so much for, for joining us, Avery. This has been such a pleasure. Yeah. Thank you so much for having me on. This has been Queers at the End of the World. Next time on Queers at the End of the World, it's our season finale in true all-night talking party fashion. It's going to go all month. Join your hosts, Nat and Nina, plus a group of amazing people you've met over the past nine months. Delesselin, Rue George Warren, Eliana Gasawa, Treandria Russworm, and A.E. Osworth as we try to make our post-collapse utopian dreams come true in an all-night collaborative storytelling extravaganza. We'll be playing Avery Alder's game of Queer Community in the Ruins, Dream Askew, as our grand finale for season one. See you there! Our show art is by the fabulous Ellie Yanagasawa, who you can find for your own commission at Ellie the Cosmic Jelly. And you can find us on Patreon at patreon.com slash queers at the end of the world. The music for this episode was La Fin des Ericots by Tintamare. You can find us at queerworlds.com or at queerworldspodcast on Instagram. 
If you enjoyed the show, we would really, really appreciate it if you'd rate and review us. It helps people find us, and it lets us know that you're out there listening. And tell a friend who you think will enjoy it. That's by far the best way for folks to find out about the podcast. Part of the point of all this is for us to talk to our communities, so we'd love to hear back from you. Get in touch with us at queerworldspodcast at gmail.com. All right. Good luck out there, dear hearts. 